How far can you trace back your family tree? I was only raised around one grandparent, and I knew neither the names nor the faces of my great-grandparents. I knew my grandmother came from Italy, and we got to visit her hometown in 2000. My dad's grandparents came from Sweden. That's about all I know. To be honest, it's all I really care to know. Some people, though, really want to know about their ancestry. They want to be able to trace their family tree as far back as possible. And now with companies like Ancestry or 23andMe, you can submit your DNA and they will tell you uh, what some of your ethnic history might be. But very few people have access to a real family tree. Talking to genealogy that traces the names of your ancestors back hundreds of years. Most people can't trace their ancestry back to even the 1800s. And that's because in Western culture, keeping a strict genealogy has not been a big priority. Especially for immigrants coming to America, they wanted a fresh start. And like with my grandma, her family tree essentially restarted when she came over here. And also, before the American Revolution, most colonists wanted to trace their lineage back to Europe to gain some standing. But after the revolution, that kind of flipped. They didn't want to be associated with Europe. It's like everyone's family tree restarted after the revolution. And yet, ever since, ancestry has not been a big part of American culture. America is about individualism. It doesn't really matter where you came from or who came before you, that your past doesn't define you. What matters is what you do with your life today. However, when it comes to understanding and appreciating the Bible, I think our cultural aversion to family records might work against us. And that's because in Scripture, the ancient Jews were very much the opposite. They kept family records to the extreme. We're talking tracing back your family ancestry hundreds, if not a thousand plus years. And it wasn't just reserved for noble families, but all the families from these 12 tribes kept a strict genealogy of their history. Why Why did they do this? Why did their family tree matter so much? The answer has to do with their national identity. That this was a people of promise. Long ago, some 2,000 years before Christ, God called this pagan Gentile named Abram, later Abraham. He was living in the east, not far from modern-day Baghdad. But God revealed himself to Abraham and called him to himself, took him to a new land, promised to multiply his descendants as the stars of the sky. And, And then God promised that from this people or this seed, God would bring about his plan to bring blessing to all the nations. And so from then on, though, the physical descendants of this people, Abraham, Isaac, then Jacob, to whom God's promise passed, they've been very concerned with tracing their lineage to Abraham to to validate that they're part of this people of promise. This continued for hundreds of years, and part of the genealogical record of this people is preserved in the Bible. Genesis 5 gives the genealogy from Adam to Noah. Genesis 10 gives the genealogy from Noah to Abraham, showing this people of promise is connected to creation. Then you read the book of Numbers and 1 Chronicles and Ezra, and you see a long list of genealogies of these descendants of Abraham. Why are these in the Bible? I mean, look, we all know that these are not thrilling portions of the Bible to read. More than a few plans of ambitious Christians to read through the Bible in a year have been cut short by the genealogies of numbers. They just can't get through them. But these are part of inspired scripture for a reason. 
for Israel and the church, these genealogies were preserved to just put on display the ongoing faithfulness of God to his promises because they show in a real tangible way that God's promises are still alive. His promises were glued to this people and their descendants. And so long as they're still around, his promises are still alive. God never told them exactly when they would come true. But the fact that this people is still a people shows that his promises are alive and well. And this became the hope that Israel clung to and part of their national identity, especially as they became a scattered people detached from their land. Their connection to their past and their hope for the future was tied to their ancestry. And so while they may not be very fun to read, you know, these genealogies in scripture serve an important function. And they carry great meaning for Israel. That's why some 54 chapters in the Old Testament are devoted to genealogies. And if you didn't know, that's why two chapters in the New Testament are devoted to genealogies as well. You'd find them in Luke chapter 3 and also our passage for this morning in Matthew chapter 1. So you can open your Bibles now to uh, page 1 of the New Testament and Matthew chapter 1. Because starting today, we're beginning in earnest our very own verse-by-verse exposition through Matthew's gospel. And Matthew begins his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus. That's not a very gripping way to begin a book, especially you and I as modern readers. We have a short attention span. We need an introduction a little more engaging than this. Hopefully, you don't just tune it out, but... The more you stop and study this genealogy, you find it actually is quite engaging and intriguing. Matthew doesn't give this to to give us a thrilling narrative. That's not what this is. But that doesn't mean it's not important or purposeful. And to the contrary, this genealogy of Jesus is very purposeful. What's the purpose? Matthew's purpose is not quite the same as Old Testament genealogies. Those showed how the promise of God to and through Israel was still alive as they looked to the future. But the New Testament presents the genealogy of Jesus to show how the promises of God to and through Israel are are now finally coming to their fulfillment. No genealogy after Jesus is given or needed Because the promises of God are are realized in him. That's it. That he's the finish line. He is the one for whom Israel and the whole world were waiting. And that's what Matthew's trying to show. Last week, we did an introduction to Matthew. And we discovered he, he definitely has a Jewish audience in mind. And he wants to show them, really prove to them that this Jesus is their Messiah. He wants his kinsmen to come and believe in this Jesus. That the Savior has come. That they would open their eyes to the fact that Jesus is the perfect and literal fulfillment of all of their hopes. And so it makes perfect sense that Matthew's proof would begin with Christ's pedigree. And for a Jewish audience, this is just a basic pre-qualification. It's like if you want to buy a new car, you would perhaps before go to a bank and try and get pre-qualified for a loan. But let's say you got rejected. You are turned down for that loan. Well, then don't even bother going to the dealership. Like You're not going to get the car. You're not pre-qualified. And likewise, for the Jews, if Jesus doesn't have the right family tree, don't even bother presenting him as the Messiah. He's not even pre-qualified. They would discount him from the beginning. 
It's just a basic pre-qualification because God himself said the Messiah, when he comes, would have a, a certain family tree. But Matthew now is laboring to show us that, that Jesus actually has the right family tree. This genealogy is not here for your entertainment, but it is here for your instruction, your edification, your encouragement, even your faith, that you too need to know Jesus comes as the fulfillment of promise. And this morning, as we begin Matthew's gospel, we're not going to skip over these verses. We're not just going to jump to the good stuff, you know, verse 18, that the virgin birth of Christ. We'll get there next week, but we can't skip. This is why, by the way, I love verse-by-verse expository preaching. You can't skip the hard stuff. You can't skip the boring stuff. The more you study Scripture, though, you realize none of it's actually boring. It's just misunderstood. How many preachers today, though, would never touch a genealogy because it's just too boring? But if you skip this, you'd be robbing yourselves because this is part of the inspired counsel of God for you. It's my job to give you the whole counsel of the word of God. No skipping. So we're going to go through these verses and I aim to show you their purpose and even their power. We're going to start by doing something you may have never done before. And that is read through the entirety of the genealogy of Jesus. So I hope you're awake. Matthew 1, 1 through 17. Just follow along as I read. Matthew 1 verse 1. He begins his gospel and he says, The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob. And Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Temar. And Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham, Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amon, and Amon the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Elikim. Elikim, the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. And Achim, the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. And Mathan, the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. I think I made it through. I only stumbled on one of those names. They're kind of tricky. You try it. (laughs) But you know, the big question these four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, seek to answer is who is Jesus? 
One of the main questions. Who is he? He's not just an ordinary person. Who is this Jesus? Each of the gospel writers tell us the fullness of who he is, but they all emphasize something on their own. Mark emphasizes Jesus as the suffering servant. One come to serve us, lay down his life for us. And Mark includes no genealogy of Jesus. A servant doesn't need a genealogy. Luke, however, emphasizes Jesus as the son of man, presents him like a second Adam, the perfect man come to die in our place to save humanity. Luke does include a genealogy of Jesus, but he doesn't go back just to Abraham. He traces Jesus back to Adam. And then you have John who emphasizes Jesus as the son of God. All the gospel writers clearly show the deity of Christ, but John makes that like his main point. And John includes no earthly genealogy of Jesus, but he shows the ancestry of Jesus before Adam, before creation. He shows Jesus is actually the, the eternal God. He gives, you might say, a heavenly genealogy in his first verse. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. The word was God. We come back to Matthew, though. Matthew himself, we see in his gospel, the question is posed often, who is Jesus? Matthew eight twenty seven. Jesus stills a storm. And the disciples wonder, who then is this, that even the wind and seas obey him? Matthew 21, 11, Jesus enters Jerusalem with fanfare, and the crowds wonder, who is this? Could this be the Christ? Matthew 27, the high priest wants to know who Jesus is. Uh, or that was Matthew 26. Matthew 27, Pontius Pilate wants to know who Jesus is. Who are you? Are you the king of the Jews? It should be clear reading Matthew's gospel, Jesus is someone more, but his identity is not often accepted. Matthew 13, he's in his hometown of Nazareth. They're not believing in him. Despite his miracles, they don't believe he's the Messiah. They, they, they challenge his identity. They say, who is Jesus? You're just the carpenter's son. You're just the son of Mary. There were those who did not believe in him, and they challenged his identity as the Messiah over his lineage. But Matthew's going to show us that's not true. And to the contrary, Jesus actually has the one and only promised pedigree of the Messiah. So let's take a closer look at Matthew's introduction now and just see from his very beginning how he answers the question, who is Jesus? That's the question. Who is Jesus? And he answers it in three points. First, he is the Messiah. He is the Messiah from verse one, just to begin. He starts off and says the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. If the question is, who is Jesus? Why don't you start with his name, Jesus? What does it mean? Jesus is Jesus in the Greek, which is translated from the Hebrew, Yeshua, which in the English is actually Joshua. It's a little roundabout how we came to Jesus in the English, but his Hebrew name was what we would call Joshua. When they called him Jesus in the Greek, that was just their word for Joshua. You have in Acts chapter 7, verse 45, it references Joshua from the Old Testament. And his name in the Greek is the same thing, Jesus. So we're used to calling him Jesus in the English, but the Hebrew equivalent really is Joshua. And being a Jew, it's his Hebrew name that matters. Their names were not meaningless. They often carried meaning. 
So what is the Hebrew meaning of the name Joshua? Well, it's a combination of Yahweh, the name of God, and Yasha to save. So Joshua means Yahweh saves, or the Lord is salvation. Yahweh is salvation. That's the name of Jesus, Yahweh saves. You know what this means is all those neon Jesus saves lights are redundant. They should just say Jesus because his name already means the Lord saves. Now, Joshua was a common name in the first century. Uh, People were named Joshua back then. Is there any special significance to Jesus being named Jesus? Well, very much so. I don't want to steal the thunder from next week, but it's not like you don't already know. He looked down at verse 21 in the chapter and the angel of the Lord commands Joseph to name Mary's son, Jesus. Why? Because he's going to actually live up to his name. Verse 21, angel says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. See more on that verse next time. But just from the name of Jesus alone, we learn something of his identity. He's a savior. He'll be one who saves. And most importantly, he will actually save his people from their sins. It's a salvation we really need. But being not literally the son of Joseph, but the son of God, it would not be Joseph to name the child. God the father would name this child. And God chose the perfect name, Joshua. The Lord is salvation. And this name, of course, evokes Joshua from the Old Testament. He's the one who led Israel into rest. Joshua, in a sense, saved or delivered the people from their wilderness wanderings and delivered them to this land of promise. And the Christ would come as, as a greater Joshua, you might say, and deliver people from wilderness of sin and lead them to an eternal rest. He is truly the great Joshua. Now, carrying on, though, Matthew tells us something more about this Jesus, namely that he is the Messiah. Verse 1, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. In the Greek, this word Messiah is the word Christos, Christ. Most often it's translated as Christ, but the NASB here translates it as Messiah on purpose just to show uh, really that the sense of the word really reminding us, you know, Christ is not his last name. I think you know that. I hope you know that, but it's a title. Later in church history, even early on in the early New Testament church, Christ effectively became like his last name, but it's not a last name. It's a title. Christ itself comes from Creo in the Greek, which means to anoint. So Christ is just a title meaning the anointed one. And that in turn, is the exact equivalent of the Hebrew term Messiah. The word Messiah from the Old Testament literally just means the anointed one. Same as Christ. And it was used to refer to priests and kings who were anointed with oil for office. This was a a custom of the Jews to anoint their leaders with oil, showing they've been chosen, consecrated to lead. Chosen by God to serve. Why did the Jews do this? We don't do this today. Can you imagine at the next presidential inauguration, someone takes a a little vial of oil and pours it on the president's head? We don't do that. We have our own customs. This was a custom of the Jews, and it was given by God himself. You think back to 1 Samuel 16, for example, that God had rejected Saul 
from being king over Israel, and he had chosen a new man to be his king. So he instructed Samuel the prophet, take a horn of oil and go to Bethlehem, because God has chosen a new king. He's chosen a man after his own heart, like God told Samuel, that God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so the youngest and smallest son of Jesse was chosen, David. And 1 Samuel 16, 13 says that Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. On that day, David became the anointed one, the chosen one, the chosen king of of God himself for special service to lead the people righteously as king. David himself, though, fell short as that perfect king. The scriptures always look forward to a greater anointed one, a greater Messiah, one chosen by God himself to lead the people into everlasting righteousness. And that hope of Israel was purified over the centuries and made clear by the scriptures so that eventually they learned that this anointed one, this Messiah, was their only hope. Especially after Israel lost sovereignty as a nation, only this Messiah, this Christ, this anointed one could restore them. And well, guess what? Matthew is telling us Jesus is that anointed one. He is the Christ, the Messiah. God's anointed one. He is the one who will deliver his people forever. Now granted, Jesus did not do everything they expected the Messiah to do. That was their own fault for twisting the scriptures. Matthew will show us using the Old Testament scriptures exactly what the Messiah was supposed to do and how Jesus fits that bill exactly. He is the promised Messiah of God. Speaking of secondly, He's the son of David. Who is Jesus? He's the Messiah. And then secondly, he is the son of David. As verse one continues, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. And in one sense, it's redundant to call Jesus the Messiah and the son of David. Because son of David was the, the number one messianic title. It was well known when the Messiah came, he would be a son of David. This title has a twofold meaning. In the first, the Messiah would be a literal descendant of David. And then second, that he would fulfill all of God's promises to David. This is where you really need to know the Old Testament expectation of the Messiah to appreciate Matthew announcing Jesus is the son of David. This is precisely why two weeks ago I preached an entire sermon on just that, the Old Testament expectation of the Messiah. So you need to go get that again if you weren't here to, to see the, the long version. For now, I'll just briefly remind you, it was God himself who chose David to be his king, his representative ruler. And what set David apart was just his faith. He was a man who trusted God for everything. God set his love on David. God made David really the archetype of his king. God knew David was fallen. David was no savior. He needed salvation. But God promised to David that a savior would come and he would come from him. Let me read you really one of the biggest series of promises in the Old Testament, known as the Davidic covenant about this figure. Just listen to 2 Samuel 7 verses 12 
through 16. Where God says to David, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. These words no doubt had a a near sense fulfillment in Solomon, the son of David. He became the next king. He built God a literal house, the temple. But Solomon himself was no savior. These words also had a far sense fulfillment. They they spoke of a a greater son of David who will build God a forever house, who will reign on a, a forever throne over a forever kingdom with God's people forever. In this figure, we have the promise of forever salvation. And the rest of the Old Testament only adds to this hope. By by the time of of Jesus, though, the Jews of his day had come to to settle for this rather myopic view of the Messiah, though. That he would come, he'd bear the sword, he would deliver them from Rome, and just enable Israel to prosper in Palestine. That's good, that's all fine, but... It's a little short-sighted that they, they were missing the big picture. Like, what about your sin before God? What about judgment? What about your eternal salvation? Who cares about Rome? Being a literal descendant of Abraham doesn't give you a pass. But God always promised that this greater son of David would bring about a greater salvation, an eternal deliverance. And Matthew will only go on to show, again, how Jesus fits the description of doing everything the Messiah was supposed to do. The one who will truly lead God's people into that greater deliverance. He is the promised son of David. But now here in Matthew 1, Matthew's just not stating he's the son of David. He's going to prove he's this promised son of David. And that's through this genealogy. Because as I said before, The son of David had to come from a certain lineage, the Messiah. One thing the Jews did get right, the son of David had to be an actual descendant of David. God clearly promised that a seed or or descendant of David would sit on the throne forever. But here, what do you know? It turns out Jesus was actually a literal descendant of King David. He's got the right family tree and the genealogy shows that. Just looking at the genealogy, David himself is the central figure in this genealogy. His name is 14th on the list, which fits Matthew's mnemonic device of 14s. More importantly, David is the only one called king. Look at verse 16, or rather verse 6. It says, Jesse was the father of David, the king. All the guys from verse 7 through 11 were kings, but only David is called the king. He's the archetype king. And only his greater son would become the king of kings. And Matthew's telling us that's Jesus. Also, verse 17 shows how this genealogy is divided into three segments. And they're really all related to David. You have first the, the, the genesis of David's house. Secondly, the rise and fall of David's house. And then third, the twilight of David's house. But the, the light has not been extinguished. 
The hope is not lost because a seed of David remains alive. And that means the promised one could still come. You know, as a quick side note, after the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem in AD 70, the Jews, they really lost a lot of their genealogies and many just stopped keeping genealogies. And so in the past 2000 years, they've not been kept like they were. And so really no living Jew today can, can actually give real proof of his ancestry going back to David, which just means for Jews today who reject Jesus still waiting for their Messiah, they have no way to actually prove he's a son of David. But Jesus could. We'll get to Abraham in a moment, but starting in verse 6, moving forward, you have the lineage of David traced through Solomon. And then verses 7 through 11, it follows the kings of Judah, who were all descendants of David up to the deportation of Babylon. And the point here is not to do a character study on each name. It's just to show that there's an unbroken lineage from David to Jesus. And that continues even after the deportation to Babylon. That was a huge event. And it's, it's stunning that the line of David survived all this war and, and conquest. You know, typically, when another king or nation came to power, they would execute everyone from the previous king's bloodline just to ensure that there's no insurrection. That never happened to the line of David. It was preserved, even in Babylon. Later, David's descendants returned to the land. The first being Zerubbabel. He did not return as king, but hey, a seed of David was alive and well. And that would continue for the next 400 plus years. We know nothing of the names after verse 12 because the Old Testament goes silent. That's Israel's dark ages, you might say, at least according to scripture. But clearly, family records were still being kept. You know, Joseph himself, the the stepfather of Jesus, he knew his lineage. If you recall, he took his pregnant wife, Mary, to Bethlehem to register for the census. Why would he do that? Why not just stay in Nazareth? I mean, she's almost due to give birth. Why this long journey to Bethlehem? Well, as Luke 2, 4 adds, that Joseph was of the house and family of David. He knew his lineage, and he knew he had to therefore go to Bethlehem, the city of David, for the census. And that lineage would legally pass on to Jesus. Now, speaking of Joseph, here Matthew's careful with his words to show that Joseph was the legal father of Jesus, but not his birth father. Throughout Matthew's genealogy, he has this pattern. This person was the father of this person, and so on. This person was the father of this person. He keeps this pattern very straightforward. But notice, not verse 16. Look at verse 16. He says, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. You see how it never says Joseph was the father of Jesus. He wasn't. Why not? Well, the next passage will explain. You can come back next week to learn about that. Still though, being the husband of Mary, Jesus inherited from Joseph his legal lineage. Now, I just want to quickly point out some of the differences between Matthew's genealogy of Jesus and Luke's genealogy. Because when you read Luke's genealogy from David on, The names are different. There is a reason for that. 
And Matthew's goal is to validate Christ's royal claim to the throne of David. So he shows the legal descent of Jesus from David through Joseph. Luke's goal, however, is to trace the actual bloodline of Jesus. Not the legal, but the racial lineage from David through his mother Mary. And so together, though, these two genealogies complement one another in a a profound way. They show that Jesus was both the legal descendant of David through Joseph and also the blood descendant of David through Mary. This helps explain some of the names we find in Matthew's record. For example, he does not follow the path of the firstborn son. After Jacob, we don't see Reuben, the firstborn, but Judah. That's because Genesis 49.10, Judah was chosen to rule. Also, after David, we don't see Nathan, the firstborn, but Solomon, the heir to the throne. Luke, on the other hand, he traces the line of David through Nathan, the bloodline. And so you have these two lines, the legal and the blood. After David, they diverge through Nathan, through Solomon. They come together later in Zerubbabel. But then they diverge again. Solomon's line would go on and ultimately lead to Joseph. Nathan's line, the other son of David, would go on, ultimately leading to Mary. But then these two lines would converge once again, one last time, in who? In Jesus. You can see what Matthew is doing, though. Again, he's establishing Christ's claim to the throne by tracking throne succession. Matthew is presenting Jesus as the Messiah King. So he shows Jesus coming in a long line of the kings of David. And while not every man here reigned as king over Israel, they all retained the royal right to rule per God's choice of the line of David. And Jesus now inherits and fulfills that choice. Who is Jesus? He is the son of David, legally. Racially, he has full claim on the throne of David. And God the Father will give him that throne, just as the angel announced to Mary in Luke one thirty-two. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Well, thirdly now, who is Jesus? He's the son of Abraham. He's the Messiah. He's the son of David. And thirdly, Matthew tells us he's the son of Abraham. Going back to the first verse, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. And then he says, the son of Abraham. Now, this genealogy was not given to be broken down name by name. Now, Matthew's just giving us the big picture proof of who Jesus is. He's the son of David. So we see the uninterrupted lineage from David to Jesus. But he's more. He's also the son of Abraham. And so the genealogy shows that as well, tracing the line from Abraham to David. Now, here's a good place to point out that as Matthew traces the legal descent of Jesus, he makes some omissions. This is a summary genealogy organized in these these three groups of 14, most likely to assist in memorization. We know, for example, that there were several generations in between Rahab and Boaz. Matthew proves to be a master of the Old Testament. He knows this. He's just giving us a a structured summary. And also the word he uses for father just means ancestor. It can be translated ancestor. He's just trying to make clear the connection between Abraham and David. The bigger question though is, 
Why go back to Abraham? Why not stop at David? Or why not go all the way back to Adam like Luke does? Luke was written for a Gentile audience. He's trying to show Jesus is the Savior for all mankind. So it actually makes perfect sense that he goes all the way back to Adam. Matthew, though, being written for a Jewish audience, this explains why he goes to Abraham. He wants to make explicit the connection between Jesus and Abraham, who was the father of the faith. The son of Abraham is not really a messianic title. That the Messiah would come from Abraham goes without saying. Seeing that he'd be a son of David, who himself came from Abraham. So really, though, why bring Abraham into this? Well, I believe Matthew wanted to elicit God's promises to and through Abraham, just connecting Jesus to the fulfillment of those promises as well. What promises? I'm just going to again point you to our message from two weeks ago, this Old Testament road trip. We, we traced many of those promises to and through Abraham. But paramount was the promise that in Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. God doesn't say how, but somehow through these descendants of Abraham, God would bring blessing to all the nations. God's plan of redemption has always been for all the nations. Later in the Old Testament, that hope for the Gentiles would be clarified. They would one day be brought into the same salvation as the Messiah, or rather of the Messiah. And with the coming of Jesus, that that day has dawned. It's just like Simeon prophesied over the newborn Jesus in the temple. Luke 2, verse 30, he says, My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. This Jesus would certainly bring salvation to the house of Judah and the house of Israel, but he would also bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Unless you forget, Abraham started off as a Gentile. Only when God called him did everything change. So it goes for all people. No one has any real birthright to God's favor. Salvation has nothing to do with your first birth. Your ethnicity makes no difference. Salvation only pertains to the second birth. And that's open to all nations, all peoples, that the Jews mistakenly believed that they were literally born saved because they were physically descended from Abraham. They thought, that's it. And they were entitled to God's blessing, but but far from it, the only way to God's salvation blessing is grace, the free gift of God. And, and only those who receive Jesus by faith receive that, that grace gift. And I believe that's the intended secondary purpose to Matthew's genealogy. His primary purpose, we've seen, is to tell us who Jesus is. He is the Messiah, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. He is the fulfillment of of God's promises. Jesus checks all the right boxes. He has the right family tree. But there is more going on here because as you take a closer look, you realize this is a very crooked family tree. But this is meant to give us a picture of salvation by grace, that this Messiah came to save sinners indeed. I mean, look at the list of kings that have a place in Christ's lineage There's a few good ones, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, Josiah. Most of these men were extremely wicked and immoral. You have Manasseh here, he's the worst of the worst. 2 Kings 21 says he led Israel in state-sanctioned idolatry 
violence, immorality, and even child sacrifice to pagan gods. Literally, the worst of the worst. But here, verse 10, Manasseh, he's in the lineage of Jesus. Even Abraham and David are unstained. Abraham was a polygamist who twice lied that his wife was his sister to save his own skin. David, as you well know, committed adultery with Bathsheba and covered it up by having her husband killed. Matthew explicitly reminds us of that in verse 6. Why does he do that? He doesn't have to do that. You could gloss over that fact. This was the, the most shameful part of David's story. Why bring that up? When you look at this list of names, you find there are none righteous. Not even one. Not, not even David, the great king. That They're all sinners. This family tree of Jesus, the Messiah, is filled with sinners. How can this be? That's really the wrong question. How can this be otherwise? This is why Jesus needed to come because the whole human race was hopelessly lost and bound in sin. Even the best men of faith were plagued by sin. That's precisely why God sent his son, Jesus, into the world, that those who believe in him might not perish forever, but be forgiven and receive eternal life. And all of that, though, comes by God's grace, his doing not our own. And that, I think that saving grace is just highlighted by some of the names that stand out. Matthew's genealogy follows a clear pattern. He breaks his own pattern four times. And each time it stands out, that's on purpose, that, that's drawing emphasis. And it has to do with the inclusion of four women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. It's uncommon for women to be included in these genealogies. Matthew does it four times. And to make matters worse, three of the four women were Gentiles. Make matters even worse, three of the four were known for sexual morality. All four were sinners, outsiders. Tamar posed as a prostitute and seduced her father-in-law Judah to gain an heir. Rahab actually was a prostitute and a Gentile at that. Ruth was pure, but a Moabite, an archenemy of Israel. And the Bathsheba committed adultery with David. How interesting, though, that, that you have four women who, who have their own family tree of being Gentiles or sexually immoral, yet they were grafted into Christ's family tree. Why are they here? Why did Matthew include them? He didn't have to. He could have just given us a straightforward rundown of all the men in Christ's lineage. Why does he mention all these aberrations. Why include these? These were all the, the shameful part of this Israel's history, well known. So why not, again, gloss over them? It can only be to show us that and remind us these are precisely the types of people Jesus came to save. All of his ancestors were sinful people. And when you think about it, who else did God have to choose from? But the inclusion of all these names only showcases the mission of this Jesus. I think that mission resonated with Matthew himself, who was a sinner, an outcast, being a tax collector. But the message of this Jesus is made clear in Matthew's own calling. As we saw last week, after Jesus called him, he later said, Matthew 9, 12, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. Who is this Jesus? 
He is the Messiah, son of David, and the son of Abraham. And as expected, but contrary to Jewish belief at the time, he he is also a friend to sinners. He came to seek and save that which was lost. No, we're not talking about sinners who stay in their sin. They will meet his rod of correction. But sinners who see their sin, recognize him for who he is, their Savior, cry out to him for mercy. He will by no means turn away. He came to die for such people. And the question then is, have you cried out to him in this way? Have you recognized Jesus for who he really is? Not just a man, but this divine Messiah, the long-awaited Savior. Have you seen your own sin before God and and cried out to him for his mercy? Now, tell you what, the, the faith of your parents does nothing for you. It does not save you. That does not place you in Christ's family tree. Your own family tree matters not. When it comes to salvation, you need to know God does not have grandchildren. It doesn't matter how godly your parents are. That's no automatic ticket to your place in the kingdom. God only has children. You must be adopted directly by your own faith in this Christ. And really, even the youth in the room. doesn't matter if you've been raised in a Christian home. The faith of your parents won't make you right with God. You have to come to your own understanding and trust in this Jesus as your Messiah and Savior. This is the whole reason he was born into this world. But look, the fact that this genealogy is filled with sinners, I mean, when you think about it, that's good news for us. And just think, among the ancestors of Jesus, you've got sinners saved by grace. So who do you think will make up the descendants of Jesus? Jesus had no physical seed, but he came to start a new race, a race of the redeemed. Like Revelation 5, 9 says of him, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Now for you, as you believe in this Jesus, you become his spiritual descendant. You get grafted into his new family tree. No genealogy after Christ was given of his spiritual descendants. None has been kept throughout history, but when you think about it, God knows it. A line of discipleship can be traced from Jesus to you today. 2,000 years later, there is a line of disciples, a line of faithful men and women, sinners who believe the gospel. And then we're grafted into this new family tree, and and you're now part of that same tree, the the tree of life, the tree of Christ. Just pondering that should make you thankful, because no one earns or deserves a place in this tree. No one. Not you, not me. Take that as a, a reminder daily to be thankful, to thank God for the grace that grafted you in this tree, especially if you're like me and you're a Gentile. A few of you might have a a Jewish lineage, but the rest are just Gentiles. And we were without God, without hope in the world, cut off far away. Only by his grace did he bring us near. That should move you to thankfulness. And that thankfulness should in turn drive you to have some children, spiritually speaking, to make some new disciples, to carry on this family tree. That is Of course, still a work of God's grace, but he calls us 
to be used by him and to evangelize, to call others to Christ. And that's what we need to do. Let others know that Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, son of Abraham, friend of sinners, he has come into the world to save sinners. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, we we do give you thanks that that Christ, the Messiah, has come into the world to save sinners. For such are we. We all were without hope apart from you and under a just condemnation, lost. And it doesn't matter what our family tree was, it was all going to end in death apart from you, Lord. But we thank you that you set your love upon us and upon your people and desired to redeem a, a new people, a lineage of, of the, the saved, the adopted, all by our grace. But that could only come about through, through the Christ, this promised one, promised for, for thousands of years, yet has come now in the person of Jesus Christ to, to die in our place, rise from the dead that we might not perish, but can be with you, part of your family in heaven forever. That's the family tree you want to be of, Lord. We thank you for the grace that, that grafts us in. And for those here who don't know it, that you would, you would call them and that they would turn to Christ themselves, see him for who he is, that that great Savior has come. And we give him our faith and our lives and then tell others that they might know him as well. Be with us, Lord, in your church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.